We live in a world where the reality of celebrities is sort of inevitable. Whether it be actors, athletes, artists, philosophers, or even theologians, there are people who are inevitably going to excel so much in their field that others with the same interests are going to fall in love with them. And when that happens, it's hard for these disciples to ever let go of their heroes. It becomes very difficult for these disciples to ever withstand criticism of their heroes or even be able to cope with the fact that there are other people who maybe don't even think of them as heroes. We want everyone to love the celebrities that we love. It's hard, in other words, to have fellow rival celebrities. And John the Baptist had disciples who needed to learn this lesson the hard way. John the Baptist, I continue to contend, was far more popular than we typically understand when we just read through the New Testament, which is fitting because his whole purpose was to make Christ popular. So it's, it's fitting that the New Testament doesn't even give us as accurate of a view of John the Baptist as you might have. But we know through secular historiography that John the Baptist was a superstar. He was incredibly popular, far more than we tend to realize. He was a true celebrity of his day. In fact, he was so popular, we're going to see today, that even after Jesus began his own ministry, working miracles, teaching people the ways of God, John had disciples who preferred to stick with him. John had disciples who wanted to stay with John. And these disciples, like us, are going to experience jealousy because they're going to see their favorite theologian, their favorite celebrity, lose his popularity and his influence. And so the good news is that John the Baptist, in return, gives them and us, by extension, a valuable lesson in humility. So let's learn about Christian humility. If you will open your Bibles to John chapter 3, we're going to read verses 22 through 36 together. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, Thus saith the Lord, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been in prison, been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. After jumping forward two weeks in a row, first for Palm Sunday and then for Easter, we have to now travel back in time and pick up where we had left off early on in the book of John, specifically very early on in Jesus' ministry. So sometime after Jesus' sort of late night theological discussion with Nicodemus, they go out into the more rural areas of Judea and he begins baptizing. And John the Baptist, we're given a little taste of the future, apparently is going to be arrested at some time in the future. And so, from a historical perspective, the author of John is trying to remind his readers, I know you guys know John the Baptist is the guy who was like arrested and killed, but just remember, we're not there yet, right? He kind of gives them this little taste of the future. And so John hasn't been arrested yet. He hasn't been put in prison yet. So what's John, a faithful follower of Christ, going to do? He's going to keep doing his ministry, right? Jesus is here, but John's not dead, so he better keep honoring the Lord. So John and Jesus are both sort of simultaneously working in ministry in different regions together right now. And so while John the Baptist is continuing to baptize people and call them to believe in Jesus, he has some fervent, excited disciples who, like many of us who grew up in the Christian faith, just love debating on Facebook. And so this is sort of like the first century equivalent of a Facebook debate. They find a devout religious Jew, and they have some debate over purification. We don't really know the the, the extent of the debate, apparently that's not important enough for John, but we can kind of see why a debate over purification makes sense. John is literally in the process of baptizing people, right? He's giving people what we would say is a Christian purification ritual. And so most likely the debate was something along the lines of a Jewish believer going to other people who are supposed to be Jewish believers and saying, why do you baptize when we already have baptisms? You see, the Jewish world at this time had tons of washing rituals, purification rituals. Some of them were prescribed in scripture. Most of them were oral traditions passed on through time. Um, But nonetheless, the Jews already had tons of baptisms. They've already been washed for different reasons in different ways tons of time. So there's some kind of debate over baptism and its relationship to Judaism And you can see somehow this this progression eventually stopped being about doctrine and started being about dudes. It was no longer about baptism, it was about John. It was no longer about baptism, it was now about Jesus. And it was pointed out that John's and his disciples, they used to be the stars of the show. Everyone used to go to John for baptism. Everyone would go to John for teaching. Everyone would go to John to learn this stuff. And now they're all going to Jesus. And now all of Jesus' disciples are doing the baptisms, and we're out here losing our popularity. And so you can sense in their question their envy, their concern, their jealousy. Why has Jesus overshadowed you? Why does Jesus' disciples get to do all the baptisms and we're just left debating the zealots? So they voice their complaint, and then John gives them and us a master class in humility. John responds in exactly the kind of way where you would expect someone whom Jesus loves so much to respond. And he responds to his devotees by reminding them of a few things. First, he reminds them that it was his very purpose, his very life mission, 
was to make Jesus popular. Like they're literally complaining about the thing that he's been trying to do. They're complaining about his success. Look at verses 27 and 28. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. This is why John is not only not bitter about Jesus' popularity, he's actually thrilled. He starts with this, you know, this general, everything we receive is from God. And the implication here is, is, so we need God every hour. Everything we receive, every breath of our lungs is from the Lord. And he, 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 he reasons from that general truth to the specific one. If everything we receive ultimately comes from God, then certainly my calling comes from God. So it was not my choice to magnify Christ. It was God's choice. This is the, the mission that God gave me, was to magnify Christ. And so that's why I'm not jealous. I'm actually thrilled. I've done my job well. And I love, he makes this point even more clearer by using this helpful analogy in verses 29 and 30, where he essentially describes himself as what we would think of as a best man. He metaphorically describes himself as Jesus' best man. Jesus came to earth because there's a bride that needs to be saved and married. And John is like Jesus' best man. He's, he's trying to help the, the groom find his bridegroom. He's, he's trying to help the, the groom and celebrate with the groom when he finally gets married. And it's a beautiful metaphor, right? If, if you knew someone who was jealous over your wife, jealous that you were getting married, and he wanted to marry your wife instead of you, you probably wouldn't make him the best man in your wedding. John is not at Jesus' wedding to compete with Jesus and try to marry the bride. He's there to be a best man, to celebrate and rejoice that the son is finding his bride. John is Jesus' best friend. And his life purpose was to make Jesus famous, not himself. But what John also does, he not only reminds his, his disciples of the fact that this was his job, he also reminds them of how this needed to be this way. In other words, it wasn't just some arbitrary decision. God didn't just go, hmm, I could make John the Baptist the Christ, or I could make Jesus the Christ. Let's see, flip a coin, heads, it'll be Jesus. John is saying, not only is this the way God wants it, there's a good reason why God wanted it this way. Because Jesus is actually worthy of the fame you want me to have. Jesus is actually worthy of the elevation that you want to see me have. And, and so he goes in and he gives them a number of reasons why Christ is worthy of fame and why we are not. And the first one he gives is Christ's origins. And this kind of sets the tone for the rest of, of, of the, the attributes of Christ here. But notice in verse 31, he emphasizes Christ's origins. Where does Christ come from? Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Right? So Christ is worthy to be increased because he is altogether unlike us. He transcends us. He is the eternal one sent from above. We are the temporal ones made of dirt. Right, we're, Adam was made of dirt. We're descendants of, the Ad, of Adam. We're dirt. We come and go. Christ is in heaven. That's where he's lived. That's where he's always lived. He came from heaven. He came into the earth, but he is not of the earth. We are of the earth. 
Christ is worthy to be elevated because of his origins. He is the eternal, divine, heavenly one. And because he is transcendent and from heaven and outside of creation, that makes him then, that gives him an authority. He is above all. And we saw that in verse 31. But John really emphasizes his authority in 35 and 36. Look at those verses with me. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So because Christ is the eternal heavenly one, he has authority. And in his incarnation, he has been given this authority. Authority over all things. He has so much authority that he is literally the only way a person can be saved. You cannot get into heaven without his okay. (laughs) You cannot get into heaven outside of Christ. He has all authority. And anyone who does not obey Christ, anyone who's not believing him, remains under God's wrath. And it's interesting. So here John describes the gospel as an act of obedience. Right? He says, whoever, let's read the verse again. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Because Christ has a transcendent authority, that means that his gospel is not an invitation. Well, it is an invitation, but it's, it's more than that. It's not just an invitation, it's a command. Paul says in Acts 17 that God has now commanded all men everywhere to repent. To refuse Jesus is not to merely turn down an optional invitation. It is to disobey the commandment of the all-authority one. The gospel is a commandment. So to not believe is an act of disobedience. It is to not obey the Son. And if you do not obey the Son, God's wrath is waiting for you. That's how much authority he has. He demands and commands all an absolute obedience. We must obey him. But it, Christ must increase not only because of his origins and his authority, but also because of his wisdom. Verses 32 through 33. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So because Christ is eternal and from heaven, he has a knowledge which surpasses all creatures. He doesn't merely get snippets of revelation like the prophets does. He merely relays and tells what he knows, what he has eternally seen, what he has eternally thought. So this makes his word transcendent above all other words. This makes his wisdom far and above all other wisdom, even over the prophets, even over the apostles. Christ is the cornerstone to them. Because he is from heaven. He merely testifies to what he has seen, to what he has heard, to who he is. But lastly, there's a fourth reason. Christ ought to be magnified because of his origins, his authority, his wisdom. But also, this is an interesting one, because of the fullness of his spirit. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. You see, every prophet before Jesus received the Holy Spirit. You couldn't be inspired without the Holy Spirit. But the implication is that they only received, to speak metaphorically, a measure of the Spirit. Just enough to get the job done. And and to some degree, we can even metaphorically speak of us as receiving only a measure of the Spirit. 
and that we all have some spiritual gifts, but we don't have others. But Christ received from God the fullness of the Spirit. There is no spiritual gift that Christ lacks. He is overwhelmed with the fullness of the power and the giftings of the Holy Spirit. You can't say the same about John the Baptist. That's why Christ ought to be magnified and not John. That's why Christ ought to be magnified and not us. Because of his origins, because of his authority, his wisdom, and the fullness of his spirit. And so here's what John is really telling us. Christianity is a religion that, by definition, it necessarily humbles disciples of it. You cannot become a disciple of Christ without necessarily lowering yourself. Humiliation, humbling yourself, is a necessary part of Christian religion. And that's why, really, this entire sermon, sort of, sort of um, the hinge of this whole sermon is verse 30. Look at verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. I think most likely these are probably the most well-known and famous words that John the Baptist ever uttered. And it's for good reason. Because obviously our context is different than John, right? John had a very unique role to play that you and I don't have. And so sometimes it can be hard to carry over, well, what does John do that I'm supposed to do? Or what does John do where that's just because he's a prophet and I'm not a prophet, right? And I think verse 30, this is something that is not unique to John. This is the life motto for every Christian. This is every individual Christian's personal mission statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is the goal in many ways of our personal Christian walk with the Lord. To magnify Christ and humble ourselves. To lift Christ up and get out of his way. But here's the difficult question. How do we do this? As God makes his son increase, what responsibility do we have to humble ourselves, to get out of the way? That's easier said than done sometimes. How can we humble ourselves and let Christ be magnified? Well, as I read the text and studied it, I think that within this passage, we actually are given an answer to that question. Certainly, we could go to many places in Scripture to see that. But I think that John himself gives us a, a fourfold pattern of some of the most important general ways for us to decrease. Here's how we can decrease and let Christ be magnified. So, four ways that you can decrease. The first way is to embrace God's calling. Embrace God's calling. Look at verses 27 and 28 with me. Learning here from John the Baptist. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So the first thing that John does when his disciples unintentionally provoke him to jealousy, like that's what they're doing. They are trying, whether they realize it or not, they're trying to get John to be just as bitter and envious about Jesus' fame as they are. John is being provoked to bitterness. He's being provoked to rivalry, provoked to envy. And how does he cut this off? How does he cut off bitterness and rivalry and envy? And he does it by reminding them that he has embraced the life that God has given him. God has not called him to be the Christ. 
God has not called him to be the famous one. He understands that everything is in God's control. It is God's to give. In other words, what John is reminding us of is that when you become a Christian, you come under the sovereignty of an almighty God, which means nothing is in your control anymore. You own nothing. God is the owner and giver, ultimately, of all things. He is in control of all creation, both as its sovereign ruler and as its first cause. Everything we receive, the good and the bad, comes from God, ultimately. There's nothing in your life that God cannot in some way, some way, shape, or form take credit for. And so that would include, like John, whatever God's calling is for your life. We, we call your calling your vocation. What has God called you to be? Has he called you to be rich, poor, to have a bunch of kids, to have no kids, to be a homemaker, to be an HVAC worker, a pastor? What's your calling? What did God put you on earth to do? John was called to be a prophet, to lead the way for Christ. That was John's calling. And so for him to get jealous of Christ's ministry would ultimately be to rebel against God's purpose. It would be an act of rebellion against what God gave him as a gift. John is content with Jesus gaining popularity because he knows that God called Jesus to be the Christ and not him. In other words, he is content with the life God has given him. And why? Because it's God who gave it. He's content with his life because it didn't come to him through Darwin's natural selection. It didn't come to him arbitrarily, accidentally, unfairly. It came to him from the God he adores and loves and trusts. So who, who am I to rebel against the calling that God has put on my life? And this is why we need to see envy and discontent as such serious sins. Because what they ultimately are are direct attacks against God. They are our circumstances, again, are not random or accidental, but providential. To rebel against our callings and our vocations is ultimately a challenge against God's goodness and his wisdom. Uh, John Calvin, he always, even in the English translations, it always states it so poetically, so I like to quote from him. He says it this way, What man of the ordinary rank would venture to desire more than what the Lord has given him? This single thought, if it were duly impressed on the minds of us all, would be abundantly sufficient for restraining ambition. And were ambition corrected and destroyed, the plague of contentions would likewise be removed. How comes it then that every man exalts himself more than is proper, but because we do not depend on the Lord so as to be satisfied with the rank which he assigns to us? In other words, to be envious of others is ultimately to say God got it wrong. God got it wrong. We are telling God, listen, you gave me the wrong body. I should have that body. You gave me the wrong giftings. You messed up, God. I need those giftings. To tell God he is wrong and we are right is a severe example of pride. Therefore, envy is pride. Those who covet are prideful and need to be humbled. And since envy stems from not embracing God's will, 
We humble the pride of envy and magnify Christ by embracing the will of God over our lives. So I hope you follow that connection there. In other words, this is not so much a sermon about envy. It's a sermon about magnifying Christ. But envy is one of the ways that we challenge Christ. Because it's prideful. And when you're prideful, that's an act of challenging Christ. I am more worthy of the life that Christ has given me. That's an act of pride. So one of the most important ways for you to get out of Christ's way is to trust God with the life he's given you. Embrace it and be content with it. And by the way, just so it doesn't sound like I'm just being this really harsh, kind of judgmental, get whip you into shape Pharisees, there's a payoff for this. There's a real payoff for this. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John accepted his calling from God, and because he was able to do that, he was able to simply enjoy Christ's victories rather than grow envious. So in other words, what happened to John's life when he was willing to just be content and embrace the calling God had for him? What was the outcome? Joy. Contentment. Gladness. There's a payoff. More often than not, I'm not, obviously there are extreme circumstances. I'm, I'm not talking about extremes, but generally speaking, more often than not, your road to a joyful life is not barricaded by your external circumstances, but your internal refusal to trust God with your life. There's an aphorism, what does that mean? It's, it's like a secular proverb, if you will. It's a proverb from the secular world that I think there's a lot of truth in. I one time heard it. I don't remember who it's credited to. But it goes something like this. There's two ways to become rich. You can acquire more or desire less. You can acquire more or you can desire less. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think there's wisdom there. It's true that contentment is ultimately the path to joy. I think that similar, it's you talking about riches, but I, I think we can say about the same thing with joy. One of the quickest ways to be joyful is not to get all the things that you think would make you happy, but to just be happy with the things you have. But here's what I think the proverb is missing. It's missing the power. Like that's very, that's much easier said than done. That statement as it stands is true. Just desire less. But how many of us do that? Just flip a switch? Okay, I'll just desire less. I'll just be happy. That's easier said than done, right? Like, how can we do that? Where's the power to be content? And I think John the Baptist is laying the road here. It's through submission to God's will and through our union with Christ. That's what the proverb's missing. We magnify Christ by enjoying Him. We fully enjoy him as long as we are keeping ourselves from idolatry, humbling our pride, and, and, and living under the gracious providence of a holy God. If we trust God with our lives, that is the path to contentment and joy. So there is a payoff to humbling yourself and embracing God's will for your life. But it requires humility. 
As a matter of fact, when we read the Lord's Prayer, I don't think you realized how much humility it requires to pray that prayer. Because what are we asking in that prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Your kingdom, not mine. Your will, not mine. We pray that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, sincerely prayed, leads to both humility and joy. Humility and joy. So the first way to decrease is to just embrace God's providential work in your life. But there's another way for us to magnify Christ and to decrease ourselves. And that way is to believe Christ's words. Believe what Christ has to say. Look at verses 32 and 34, through 34. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The only lament in all of John's monologue, John's monologue is very pro-Christ, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's, it's, it's humble and optimistic. The only lament in his whole thing is that not enough people believe Christ's words. This man utters divine mysteries from heaven and no one is listening to him. No one believes him. And so what does that mean for us? That means that the way that we can magnify Christ, it's pretty simple. Believe him. Accept his testimony. Listen to his words and trust them. And that means trusting his words no matter how culturally offensive they might be. No matter how inconvenient to your way of life they might be, we must trust and accept every word that comes from Christ. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So this means building our lives on Christ. Our entire lives should be built on the words of Christ. And why is that? Because according to John, Christ's words are God's words. When we, re- when we reject the words of Christ... What we're ultimately saying is God is a liar. God is a liar. Because God told us that he sent Christ to speak all of his words. And Christ didn't do that. Christ is a liar. God is a liar. We need to accept God's, Christ's words. Now practically speaking, what that means then is for us in the 21st century is it means believing scripture. It means building our lives on scripture because it is through scripture that we have the only reliable access to Christ's testimonies. And so, practically speaking for us, because we're not like John, we're not in earshot of Jesus' voice. We can't listen to Jesus the way John listened to Jesus, but God has given us an avenue to hear him. God has given us an avenue to hear Christ, and it is through Scripture. And so, Scripture then, if you want to magnify Christ, here's how you do it. You must make Scripture the ultimate authority in your life. Scripture must be on a plane that no one else is on. It is above every man, every creed, every authority. We magnify Christ by respecting his words above all others. That means sometimes we're going to have to listen to Scripture rather than the experts. That means sometimes we're going to have to listen to Scripture rather than the science trademark. That means we're going to have to sometimes listen to Scripture rather than our own deceitful hearts which want to do something else, which want to believe something else. 
when we elevate scripture above all, we elevate Christ's words above all. And when we elevate his words above all, we make him increase and we decrease. There's a related way that John hints at, though, that we make Christ magnify and decrease. Not only do we accept God's will for our life and believe Christ's words, but some of those words come in the form of commandments. Not everything is just a theological truth. Sometimes there are commandments. And so the third way that we decrease is by simply obeying Christ's commands. Obey Christ's commands. Look at verses 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So according to John, those who wish to see life must obey Christ's commands. And the primary command that John is addressing here is simply the command to believe in Jesus for salvation. John presents the gospel itself as the commandment that we need to follow. And we know this because of the juxtaposition. A, juxtas, a juxtaposition is when you essentially within a sentence compare two things. Not this, but this. Not this, but this. This like this, right? That's a juxtaposition. And ju juxtapositions are typically opposites. They're typically opposites. And so notice how, how John is thinking. First, he tells us, whoever believes has eternal life. And so the juxtaposition, what should be on the other side? Whoever does not believe. Whoever believes, this happens. Whoever does not believe, this happens. But notice John doesn't technically say that. That is what he means, but he doesn't say that. He says, whoever believes, but whoever does not obey. So that tells us that in John's mind, the act of faith is an act of obedience. If you obey through faith, this will happen. But if you disobey without faith, then this will happen. And this makes sense that John would phrase it this way because what he just did in verse 34 was remind us that the Father loves the Son and has given him all authority. So he just got done saying, Christ has ultimate authority over all things, which means he needs to be obeyed. So if you believe in him and obey him in faith, that's great. But if you don't believe in him, then you're disobeying the one who has all authority. And so what that means is that obedience to Christ is an optional Faith in Christ, as we said, is more than an invitation, but a commandment. And so here's what I think we can do. Even though John, when he says obey, he's primarily talking about faith. I think that that word, we can still extend that. John still understands that all acts of obedience are required by us. So yes, the most important way for you to obey Christ is to put your faith and trust in him. But that's not where your obedience should end as a Christian. We need to consider that this word has broader ramifications. It includes, in other words, not just faith, but repentance. To obey Christ is to repent and believe. And we cannot repent unless we are turning from sin and turning to holiness, which is ultimately found in the law of Christ. In repentance, we not only turn to Christ in faith, but we turn from ourselves and from our sins. And so let me wrap this all up neatly. If you want to magnify Christ, it's really simple. Obey his commands. He hasn't made it hard for us to understand how to magnify him. By trusting in him for salvation and following his commandments over the commandments of men, over what seems right in our own eyes, that is our way of showing the world Christ be magnified. Well, the world says, what, how do you live that shows me 
that you actually want Christ to be famous and not you. It's pretty simple because I obey his commands and not yours. More importantly, I obey his commands and not mine. I don't do what my heart tells me to do. I don't listen to the Disney movies that tell me to follow my heart. I listen to the word of God which says follow Christ. Don't follow your heart. Follow Christ. That's how we magnify him. But there's a final way that I think we can magnify him. There's a final way that we can humble ourselves. And admittedly, I don't really have a specific text for this because I think it just sort of saturates the whole text. And it's this. Proclaim Christ's message. We accept God's will for our lives. We accept God's call. We believe Christ's words. We obey Christ's commands. And lastly, we proclaim Christ's message. It's the final way for us to decrease. We proclaim Christ. I mean, that was the entire mission of John was to simply make him known. And I understand we're not prophets, but nonetheless, we still understand that if Christ is going to increase in a real tangible way, that is going to require people coming under his lordship. It's, in other words, Christ's increase doesn't happen and the world stays exactly as it is. If Christ actually does increase, then we can expect changes that flow from that increase. And so what that means is that we don't, have to be call, we don't have to be called as prophets to know that one of the most important ways for Christ to increase is for people to believe in him and to obey him. But as the book of Romans rhetorically asks, how can they believe if they've never heard? So in here there is this implicit command for us to be like John and make Christ known. I would argue that that might be our chief act of humility is to say, my message is not me. My message is not my church. My message is not my pastor. My message is Christ and Christ crucified. That's what I want to make known. That's what I want people to believe in. I don't care if you come to my church or not. I don't care if you like the movies that I like. I don't care if you like the sports that I like. I care about one thing and one thing only, Christ and Christ crucified. You want to humble yourself? Make Christ your most important message. Teach him to your children. Proclaim him to your neighbors. Make sure the world knows, like John the Baptist taught to his disciples, why he is so worthy of your faith and your repentance and your joy. Let others see why he is so worthy for us to build our lives on and magnify. Make Christ known. Magnify Christ by making him known and sharing his gospel. <laughs> 